the data moves your brand story from being about generic kind of principles, you know, like, oh, the world's best, you know, technology brand or the world's best winery or whatever it is to something very, very specific that that really can anchor your brand in a meaningful way to what your audience can latch onto. Welcome to The Branding Lab, a workshop-style podcast focused on providing actionable advice on how to build a remarkable brand. When host Yvonne Ivanescu decided to launch her own swimwear brand, she didn't know where to start. So she went straight to the experts. And the result? In-depth conversations with entrepreneurs, founders, marketing and brand experts who have created and designed the brands we love and interact with every single day. And now she's here to share these conversations with you. Are you ready to build your brand? Then you're in the right place. All right, let's dive into this episode with your host, Yvonne. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Branding Lab podcast. Today, we have on the show Andres Lopez Varela, who is a marketing strategy consultant and speaker from Australia, where he's head of strategy at Storation, a content agency that's twice been shortlisted for best content agency in the world in recent years. Andres helps big brands and challenger brands uncover what their audience is really demanding so marketers and business owners can use content to help achieve commercial goals. Andres does plenty of strategy work for brands in the financial services, healthcare, government services, technology, and tourism sectors. And in fact, he was previously the head of content for Tourism Australia, one of the world's best regarded marketing organizations. Hello, Andres. Hello, Yvonne. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, So I kind of wanted to start uh, this episode a little bit with your origin story. So talking a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up working in marketing strategy and branding. Gosh, um, <laughs> I, I guess I um, I started my career in public relations. Actually, I okay. studied um, uh, filmmaking, uh, and public relations was a minor of mine. Uh, and um, then, when I finished university and I was looking for a job, I was looking uh, at both industries, and they both had very low starting salaries. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think public relations, like, you know, filmmaking was like $32,000 average and public relations was like 35000 I was like, okay, public relations it is. And um, that's kind of how I started out. I worked in agencies for many years um, and I'm very grateful to have worked in agencies. I worked with many different people, different skill sets, different backgrounds, um, different clients as well with different styles. And so I learned a lot very quickly about not just how to handle different kinds of, you know, uh, marketing, comms, challenges, business challenges, but also I learned how to handle um, people, a lot of different people uh, in, in a really productive way, which is kind of what, what um, you know, marketing strategy is about, uh, not just in terms of uh, the people that you are marketing to, but also your clients, your stakeholders, the people that are involved in the process. And so I worked my way um, up and through many agency roles senior agency roles, and um, I kind of fell into this um, amazing role at Tourism Australia, where I worked for three years as the global content editor, like you were like you mentioned in your intro. Uh, and that's really where, um, I mean, it was it was an amazing place to work with amazing people, great agencies, like a true career highlight. It was very hectic, I will say, uh, very openly. It was like, I was there for three years, Yvonne, but it felt like five years kind of smushed into <laughs> three years. It was very intense, um, which is uh, good but by all accounts, but certainly um, not, not for the faint of heart. But there I learned a lot more about um, actually kind of, um, I guess, what I would say, you know, the, the sort of more kind of performance-oriented mindset that I have brought to marketing strategy work in the past few years, um, in the past three or four years, um, I learned while I was at Tourism Australia uh, by working with a lot of people from different disciplines, from, you know, paid search and from email marketing, uh, from, um, you know, emerging disciplines as well, CRM and uh, a lot of different kinds of, um, I guess, uh, agency ex- experts as well around technology uh, and and um, and content, so that brought me to uh, to where I am today. 
Now, I think that's really interesting that you said you focus on the more performance. And so I want, I read a quote from you that said, if you have a data centered approach while putting together your brand story, you will instantly have a better chance at distinguishing yourself in the market. Mm. Now, can you provide a little bit more context to what you meant? Yeah, I mean, I guess really, uh, let's start by saying that the data helps you find a unique and an accurate sort of, I guess, read on your audience's demand, right, for your brand, for your content, for your product. Um, Mm -hmm. You can shape your brand story around a quantifiable, unique audience demand then you're going to have a much better chance of cutting through and actually sort of, you know, getting people to do what you want them to do from a marketing and a commercial standpoint, uh, instead of having this kind of generic or non-specific kind of brand story, if you like. And so the key here is that with data, you can create a brand story that is not so much about you, uh, but about your audience and how your brand aligns with their lives, with their you know, day-to-day priorities with their aspirations, their, you know, objectives and hopes and desires and values and all that kind of stuff. The data moves your brand story from being about generic kind of principles, you know, like, oh, the world's best, you know, technology brand or the world's best winery or whatever it is to something very, very specific that, that really can anchor your brand in a meaningful way to what your audience can latch onto. And so when I said that if you have a data-centered approach, when you're putting together your brand story, you're going to have, you know, you can distinguish yourself better. I meant that you're actually going to be able to, you know, actually press real life buttons that your audience has rather than those more kind of conceptual generic buttons that, you know, particularly business owners that are starting out uh, tend to do. They think that, oh, you know, I'm, you know, if we take an example of of a winery, for example, um, then it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to make great wine. It's going to be about, you know, my region and my unique winemaking philosophy and that's what's going to make me stand out well I'm, I'm sorry to say to you that that's pretty much every half decent winery in the world uh, there's nothing special about that but what is it about your audience that they are specifically looking for in terms of wine or a winery or or even you know um, I'm you know using air quotes here like wine experience uh, and, and what can you give them in response to that rather than saying hey look at me I'm super unique what is it about you the audience that makes you unique the data makes the brand story real tangible and very specific that's really interesting um I'm going to go I want to go further on this because you said also in an article that there's no point in embarking on a content strategy unless its impact can be measured. Now, when we talk about brand building nowadays, I think you talked about you just touched upon this with the example of the winery, you know, a lot of people have these kind of soft metrics um, that they're, you know, using. So like brand authenticity, brand awareness, visibility, um, what are your thoughts about that? Because I think the way that you're talking is very different than a lot of branding experts and strategists are talking about branding. Um, And I I think it's super interesting. Uh, The one thing I'll say is that when it comes to like brand, um, I think it's, it's obviously a very subjective concept. Um, Yes, definitely. (laughs) And I think listening to, um, uh, to some of your other chats that you've had on the show, I think there's a range of different approaches that both you know branding experts or, or business owners as well who have some expertise in, and experience in this area uh, bring to the table. Uh, uh, what I would suggest is that you know, and, and I guess I'd clarify that quote. Uh, all my all my quotes have on coming back to haunt me now. It seems, but I would clarify <laughs> that quote by saying that, that there's no point embarking on the implementation of that content strategy unless its impact can be measured, right? So you can 100% start a strategy um, without exactly, you know, knowing the details and logistics of how you're going to measure things. But once the rubber hits the road, then you you must know how to measure that stuff. And and um, to, to touch on your question, I, I guess those sort of soft metrics, um, brand awareness, visibility, I mean, they are important and, and they are useful. They're, and in my opinion, they are fine for you know legacy marketing or legacy advertising kind of activities if you like 
Uh, because, uh, you know, um, advertising in particular lives and dies on things like visibility, salience, you know, cut through, unaided recall, all that stuff. But but these metrics are just not suitable for your kind of, you know, content, your digital content activity, certainly, especially if you're starting out with your marketing and, and you don't have like, you know, a suitcase of money to burn. You really have to be focused on the activities that can, in my opinion, move metrics that you can then, you know, actually learn from. You can actually mean something commercially to your business uh, and actually deliver you value over and above, you know, awareness and visibility and that kind of thing. And, and I mean, I guess you want to really only, you know, particularly when you're starting out, focus on implementing only the activity you can measure, like, you know, like whether it's social media activity, paid or unpaid, uh, paid search email stuff on your website if you might have an app for example you know and you can combine that with other metrics in your business certainly um but but, but i i do think it's really important to focus on that um which can be measured particularly when you're starting out in your marketing journey i think i had a conversation with someone that said that it's really important to build a community around your brand and i yeah. think that one of the things that it's harder, it's like the long-term goals and like the short-term goals. And so maybe it's this idea also that you're, you have like two strategies at the same time, which can be the metrics that you can, and this is just my, my thoughts. So you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but um, the, the, the ones that can be measured, but also like the brand uh, awareness, the, the community building, and you can do those two things simultaneously. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th there's a lot of work. Um, I don't want to get too nerdy. I'm, I'm conscious that the audience, uh, your audience is not like, you know, hardcore marketers, but um, there's a really interesting body of work by um, Burnett and Fields, these two guys who are like marketing researchers. Um, and I guess really they talk a lot about the combination of those two elements, those kind of, um, uh, I think, like, like, you know, like the branding activities and also the direct response kind of commercial sales promotional activities. And, and I mean, both of those things are critical to be done together. And I think that's certainly a common mistake for business owners, you know, people that are starting out in business, starting their marketing journey, and maybe don't have a lot of, um, I guess, you know, marketing support around them is to remember that that combination is super, super critical, right? It's it's very important. That's why I said like, you know, those metrics are definitely fine and useful for those kind of typical advertising and marketing activities that can't be measured in any, any other way. Um, but, you know, if you just do brand activity on its own, then you're going to end up with, um, you know, like a really, like a really expensive hobby, I think. Um, and, <laughs> That's uh, awesome. If you just if you just do you know performance driven marketing, then nobody's going to bloody remember you, and and, and nobody's going to differentiate. Um, I guess you know um, differentiate you from competitors because there's nothing to differentiate you other than the product they bought once. And let's say again, if you're a winery, like someone might just go and visit you once a year. What about the rest of the year? Like if you're just sending them wine promos and cellar door promos, by the time you know. Uh, it comes around to, to actually come and see you, maybe they've forgotten about you. Maybe you sort of fade into oblivion. So the combination is critical. And certainly, you know, I want to be super clear that when, when I talk about, you know, content in particular in relation to an audience, that um, that combination of brand and performance is really, really important. And I think that in a digital environment, you can very easily measure brand attributes, particularly when you have, um, like you say, a community, or as I would call it, an audience. Um, that you sort of are talking to on a regular basis. There are many, many ways to to measure that, um, you know, brand level effectiveness uh, in that environment. So let's keep going with this audience. Let's look at audience specifically. Now we've we've been chatting about defining your audience or your brand, sorry, in relation to your audience. So why is building an audience so critical for brands? Oh, I'm very passionate about this. I think it's one of the <laughs> biggest things um, that people can. One of the biggest. Um, most valuable things that, that businesses, uh, brands, particularly when they're starting out, can do because building an audience is critical for brands because an audience itself can quickly become a business asset that saves you money on your marketing. Building an audience that you that you own, that you can you know communicate with for free or, or low cost, 
helps to kind of mitigate and manage any of those blowouts in marketing costs that often happen with small businesses and startups that are experimenting and, and you know, finding their way. Uh, and, and I guess also having this audience um, means that when you're not actively, when they're not actively in market looking for to buy your product or service, that there's still a reason for you to be there present in their their mind, I guess, you know, like the winery example is a good example. You might go on a, on a road trip to a wine region once a year, uh, and then you get signed up to an, a, a wine club, you know, it happens to all of us, right? Everyone's excited. They're partially drunk as they kind of exit the cellar door <laughs> and hand over their email. And then before you know it, every month you're getting bombarded with 20% off this case, you know, this mixed dozen or whatever. And the reality is that that is, that is, an ineffective way of communicating with that group because you've captured an audience, right? And an audience doesn't want to be sold to all the time. An audience, an audience is not in the mindset of purchasing something all the time. What they are interested in are, you know, maybe interesting ways to serve wine, you know, wine pairings with food, maybe funny, strange cocktails with a sparkling Shiraz or something like that. Those broader related topics, even not necessarily about wine in the case of the winery, it might be something, you know, news about the region uh, the winery uh, is located in, for example. Those topics uh, are very, very important for an audience, to build an audience, because um, it allows you to communicate with this group of people beyond the opportunities for when you want to sell to them. and so. The value of an audience uh, and why it's so critical for brands is because it allows you to, over time, be more efficient, be more cost effective with your marketing because you are communicating with a group that is primed and they're warm and they're you know, feeling good about uh, hearing from your brand because you have given them useful content, editorially driven relevant content um, to help build the association of what the brand is. It, it acts as a proof point. And that's a really critical differentiator that business owners in particular who are just starting out uh, should try to get their heads around. That providing content that is not about your product, it's not sales, it's not promotional, is actually about creating an editorial kind of, I guess, idea in those people's minds about what your brand is about. Because in many ways, a brand does not exist without an audience. It's, it's just an idea or concept until people take it, uh, use it themselves, make it mean something for them in their lives, and then sort of take that further into greater relevance for them. And so building an audience is critical if you want to build a brand, because otherwise you just have a product. And it's important to remember that your best customers will come from your audience because they've been primed by your content in a way that sales or commercial or you know promotional messages cannot simply cannot do. Yeah. I wanted to touch upon really quickly the first thing that you said, which is um, an audience that you own. Um, would how do you own your audience? Because I know we talk about I know in marketing we talk that talk about this a lot too in terms of you know social media. The audience that you build on social media is not necessarily an audience that you own. Um, would this mean that email marketing emails are the way to go in terms of owning your audience? I mean, yes, it's it's certainly a really <laughs> it's probably the easiest way, right? Like it's you know yeah. capturing people's emails, making sure you get all the right permissions, of course. You know, not yeah. not, not tricking them into signing <laughs> for a coupon code and then you know spamming them twice a week, like many many brands that I that I know, um, none that I work for, of course, other brands. <laughs> um, but email is is a good way to own it, and, and you're right. Yes, the important thing, you know, and own again is air quotes. Um, because what we're really saying is that actually this is an audience that particularly for business owners that are starting out and don't have like that suit that, you know, that, that kind of suitcase of cash to burn, um, they're going to be able to reach these people without paying Facebook, Google, uh, a third party advertiser to actually reach them. All they have to do is pay for their monthly subscription to whatever email program they're using, for example, uh, and they can communicate with you know, dozens, hundreds, or thousands of people at a more kind of modest cost. Because I know that a lot of, and this is a conversation that we have in marketing all the time. And a lot of people say, you know, email marketing is dead. No one opens up emails. Like, it's not the way to go. So I think it's really interesting that, I mean, in your experience, 
is email marketing still a really great way of communicating and connecting with your audience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think increasingly so, you know, increasingly so that, you know, there's sort of a, a backlash against social media, not to mention the fact that it's bloody expensive and it's hard work to build noise and cut through. Like, you know, Facebook is, is the bizarre of the internet, right? Like you could have a really great rug or a really great sort of, you know, um, tea to sell in that yeah. bazaar, but you simply cannot be heard. You cannot be seen above other merchants who are selling, you know, louder, if you like, um, uh, have a larger shop or are somehow better at, you know, they have a higher um, effectiveness with their kind of announcements in the bazaar. I like to use a lot of metaphors and sometimes I get lost in them. But um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is that that environment on social media is so convoluted and it's also, you know, increasingly really bad value. It is important. I'm not saying it's not important. But if you are starting out as a business, as a brand, uh, and you have limited resources and time to do your marketing and contact, you know, your potential customers, then email marketing is an excellent place to start. And you should make the collection of email addresses for your audience amongst your primary business objectives, especially in your first couple of years in business. Amazing. Now, let's talk more about understanding. your audience and at what point in the brand journey should entrepreneurs start understanding their audience? Mm. And I know that we talk a lot. I mean, maybe uh, this question is not the best, but I know we talk about in branding a lot about customer personas. And so is this process different than like creating a customer's persona for your brand? Am I, mean, I getting yes. the two a little confused? Yeah, no, look, it is. Um, it is. And I think, you know, when I was thinking about our chat, um, today and you know, I, I thought this is definitely going to come up, right? This question, this differentiation between customer and audience. Um, I'd say that ideally, once you've defined your customer personas, you should immediately develop your audience personas. Uh, and and I, 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 I want to stress to 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 people that are listening that, that I want you to think of your audience as people that are similar to your ideal customer. They're not. They may not exactly be the same. Um, they may have some different attributes or, or values. Um, you know, they might be, you know, wildcards to a certain extent uh, when it comes to them connecting with your brand, but they are, they are related in a sense to your customer. And so that audience is really defined not just because a, a customer, an ideal customer persona or profile is generally driven by a series of um, traits, if you like, which point to a person, say, this person is exactly the kind of person who is most likely to buy my widget that I'm selling. While an audience persona is more about pointing to a group of people that says, this group is interested in a topic or a subject matter that I am an expert on and that I can provide leadership and guidance and expertise on. And so um, you want to remember that, that with your audience, they are interested in topic, subject matter, areas of interest. And that's important to differentiate that because, yes, they, your customers, as I said, your customers will come from that audience. But also, um, it's very likely that um, there will be audience members who, although they won't buy anything or they won't buy you know, as much as you might want, they might play a critical role, for example, in sharing your content, sharing your messages, uh, sharing news about your brand with other potential customers. They might be very influential in their networks. And that audience is, is just as valuable, especially for fledgling brands, in my opinion, because there's a degree of implicit kind of um, endorsement, if you like, um, in, that, in that kind of um, you know, advocacy. And so I would say to people that you know, they need to be thinking about that audience beyond just their customer very soon after they've defined their customer persona, not before, because you need to have the customer as an anchor point for that mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. certainly you know develop your customer personas uh you know uh, close the computer go home come back to the office the next day and then start smashing out your audience personas at that time i think that's really interesting because 
from my understanding is like your customer personas are very, very specific, right? So they're very your focused. ideal people, very focused. And then your audience is a little bit more general. So the, the idea is that they'll have maybe elements of your customer persona, but they won't encompass like all of the elements of the yes. customer persona, yes. right? Yes, that's correct. And, and okay. well, actually, yeah, yeah. And I would build on that by saying that, let's say your ideal customer, your customer persona has, you know, 10 traits, for example. It might be that in your audience, you are seeing, you know, people that have, some people have three of those traits, other people have five of those traits, other people have, you know, two of those traits. And you sort of like, they're an overlapping kind of Venn diagram, if you if you like it. And I think okay. that's really the key um, to building an audience for a brand. That's really the way publishers, media publishers have done it for decades and decades. Um, but because if, if media publishers were just targeting customers, well, you know, the New York Times would only have about 12,000 readers, you know, it wouldn't actually you know, be an enormous media powerhouse. It understands that it's serving a broad range of people with some crossover and overlap in their values and traits, but, uh, you know, some differentiation too. So in this sense, what smaller brands and entrepreneurs should realize is not to be too hyper-focused, right? Because then they get into yeah. their customer persona and they're like, no, this is exactly who I want. I don't want anyone else. I'm not going to be sharing on this group or with these people because they don't have A, B, C, D, E, you know, of, of all the traits that my customer persona has. So I think that's really interesting to say like, well, yeah, your audience might not have everything, but you shouldn't be so hyper-focused on that customer persona. That's right. That's yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Now, I think that's great. I, um, what are some of the questions that people can start asking so they they can understand and start developing their audience persona? Yeah. Um, so I have this um, methodology that I have, you know, I kind of use and have kind of refined over like a, a bunch of years and strategies and whatever um, of, of failure, frankly, um, <laughs> uh, of finding um, of not finding the answers to the questions I wanted to, that I was asking about an audience. I call it content demand uh, research, and it, it's really. I mean, you know, this is a very technical ways of doing it, but also very straightforward ways of doing it. Uh, and so I'm going to break it down. I guess there are three kind of main areas that I would suggest. Um, here you kind of want to, I guess, three main questions, Yvonne, to answer your question. The first mm -hmm. is, what sorts of questions and problems do my audience need help with? And this is where you want to, um, you know, without getting into uh, a ton of nerdy detail, is you want to be interrogating search engine insights for the answers to those questions. Because search engine is where people go to ask their kind of deepest, darkest desires and questions. And they think that nobody's watching, but we're all watching, in case you were wondering. <laughs> we're all watching your searches. Um, there's literal podcasts, which are just dedicated to, you know, answering questions <laughs> that people ask frequently on search. Um, but these questions and problems that people are seeking answers for can reveal to you um, what are the sort of um, challenges and obstacles that people are looking to overcome uh, in their life related to your area of expertise, not a random area of expertise. So if we take the winery example again, you know, questions about food and wine pairing, 100% they should be looking into. Questions about the right kind of, you know, temperature to serve wine at, 100% that's in line with them. They should not be looking at questions about, you know, how do I clean my kitchen, for example, uh, that is completely irrelevant. Uh, and so you want to kind of find that overlap. The second question yeah. I would say is important is what kind of content uh, triggers my audience to kind of, um, you know, complete the behaviors that are important to me commercially. So, you know, this is where once you have a website and social media profiles, whatever up and running, you can use the analytics tools that, you know, come built into platforms, you know, like Google Analytics and Squarespace and, um, you know, and in social media channels as well. You can use the analytics there to begin to say, oh, that's interesting. You know, when an article is, for example, 400 words long, you know, I get more people clicking through to the, to the, to the shopping pages. Um, or maybe it's something like um, when I put a video on a page, then I get, you know, 20% uh, more people signing up to my email newsletter, but the video can't be longer than two minutes because then people, you know, there's 20% less signups, for example. So these behavioral insights based on, what's happening on your channels and, and, you know, in response to your content that you start putting out, um, begin to um, answer those questions about what is the kind of stuff that moves people to actually complete action? I think this goes back to our opening point of on where we're talking about, you know, performance. And so while that content is delivering 
on a brand level, it can also be delivering on a performance level. And so that is an important consideration to keep in mind. What is the content that triggers those behaviors that I want people to complete from a commercial point of view? And then I'd say the last question um, that people might want to answer is what topics or areas of interest are valuable for my audience? And, and that, this is where you want to go and look at the media sites, the, the publisher sites, the you know, the influencers, the content creators, the experts on Twitter, for example, what are the topic areas that they're talking about, the ones that are in relation to you? So, for example, if we take the winery example again, um, you know, what are the, the sort of, you know, uh, let's say maybe it might be some industry media, what are they saying that's relevant and valuable uh, that you might be able to talk about? What are wine critics, wine reviewers, other wineries talking about on on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook? Looking at that sort of, you know, from a qualitative point of view, you know, you may not be able to get some hard data, but you can begin to identify some trends and almost like mind map the trends and the areas of interest that matter to people. And you can answer that question about what topics and areas of interest are, are valuable to my audience by seeing the response and the engagement to that kind of content. And so those three questions are really, you know, super valuable for any brand, for any business owner who wants to try to understand their audience beyond just, you know, understanding their customer. Is another thing that could, could brands also for the editorial insights, could they go onto their like competitors' websites? Oh, yeah, totally. And look yeah, at absolutely. what they're writing about and how people are reacting to it or sharing it or. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I love that idea. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. What is that? Um, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So go ahead and imitate your, you know, imitate, improve your competitors. We use that technique a lot in the work that strategy work that um, I do in the, the, the projects that I lead. We look at competitors and, you know, we, we try to create best practice benchmarks, I guess, um, based on what uh, some of the leading brands are doing in the space. It's a wonderful way to understand um, quickly uh, where there might be some white space in the category for you, yeah. but also where there might be topics and areas of interest that you absolutely definitely cannot ignore because people are just hungry for it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think one of the things with our, with the swimwear was, um, I went onto my competitors' websites and I looked at their reviews and I looked at actually their one and two star reviews. Nice. Um, and then I would read what people were irritated with or unhappy with. And I kind of absorbed that. And I looked at multiple competitors and multiple reviews to see, you know, what are some pain points? What is the, how is the audience reacting? What are their issues with the, with the swimwear brands? And I think that. That was also a really interesting um, experience and activity. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find some some good insights about sort of you know some white space there that you could kind of inhabit with your products and with your content? Yes, I actually ended up. I did. Um, one of the first things that I kind of saw was that a lot of people uh, there's this new trend in swimwear where there's these like really high cut Baywatch uh, cuts and like okay. no coverage. And a lot of people were like, well, I wish, you know, there was more coverage. I wish there was more support. Uh, and so there was a lot of that. But there was also just a lot of things with, I think, a lot now with customers, they really, really are nitpicking. So if mm -hmm. they pay a higher price, if a sti if stitching is off, if uh, something is coming off or anything is just not 100%, they tend to comment on it. <laughs> Everybody's a critic, I guess. <laughs> I know consumers are very, very intense nowadays. So I'm a little bit nervous to go into this space, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to the follow-up episode where you sort of just break down because you, you, you say the dark side of the customers. Yeah, but I mean, it's just how it works, right? That's totally. And there's a lot of value in that stuff because you can see, you're right, like people are oh, stitching, for example, great. Well, then maybe, you know, then in your, obviously you want to make your the stitching in your product superior, but then maybe there's, there's a, you know, a, a good reason that to do a video. Like, hey, I want to talk to you about the stitching in our swimwear. And, and the yeah. reason why, you know, we, we took care with the stitching was because we heard a lot of, you know, complaints, comments, whatever yeah. about the stitching. So let me, you know, run you through exactly how we do the stitching, why it's superior. And that in itself is a valuable piece of content that, that then people can use, share, engage with. And, and, you know, you can begin to find those insights, you know, all over your competitors' channels. That's amazing. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> now, um, I know that... <laughs> 
During the during this episode, we did talk a little bit, or there was some mention of like a publisher approach. Um, mm. And I know that at Storation, you use a publisher approach. Now, what can you explain a little bit? What is that, and how can smaller brands like startups use this approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm super passionate about this, um, particularly since uh, you know I. I um, uh, you know, I've been working with the team at Storiation because it's 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 a it's an agency that's quite unique in the sense that it's it's been formed by um, ex you know journalists and publisher people rather than marketers. I, I in fact was the first you know marketer to actually work in the agency, um, and they were looking at content branded content through the lens of what publishers would look at it, and they would take a publisher approach you know and aside from you know high quality content and you know beyond reproach and expert angles aside from that a publisher approach is basically about replicating you know the business model to a certain extent what media publishers have been doing successfully for decades and i'll clarify that i'm not saying that you should become a media company or that you should become a media business but you know think about how media publishers um use content to um, build an audience first. And that is the important concept, you know, to spend your time and effort building an audience first rather than, you know, recruiting customers first. And the reason for that, and this is how media publishers do it, they, they you know, publish valuable editorial style content regularly. That's to say not sales messages that attract people to follow to follow their brand you can do the same so you know think you know obviously emails social podcasts you know youtube videos about stitching and swimwear all that kind of stuff and then um over time as you have amassed that audience and followers uh, you know not too long a time but you know over over time you can begin to monetize that audience either through advertising to them um through selling them a product or a service uh, giving other brands access to the audience through collaborations and partnerships, um, you know, developing new products specifically for that audience. That's effectively the publisher approach where it's, it's saying, you know, our key business asset is the audience. Without the audience, we cannot sell a damn thing. And so, you know, we cannot sell advertising space to, you know, third-party clients. We cannot sell subscriptions to our um, customers. Uh, we, we can't sell anything until we have an audience. And how do we attract an audience? Well, we put out that valuable, engaging content on a regular basis that is editorially led, that is, you know, of value and of interest to our audience. And then when the time is right, um, we ask them for the sale effectively. It's not, it's not a dark art, right, Yvonne? Like, it's not rocket science. Business owners just, <laughs> I guess, need to remember that the product they're providing to an audience is content uh, as opposed to, to a customer. They're providing the actual product they sell. And so that publisher approach is about really building up the audience, um, getting them really engaged and committed and really warmed up, uh, and then monetizing them in, in some way, shape, or form. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> I know I've been asking. Just, I mean, I'm, you know, we're like half an hour and you've asked quite a few questions. Sure, sure, go ahead, check in. No, because I, I want a follow-up follow question, sorry. Because I, I, I completely agree with you, but I, you know, from a startup kind of mindset, you know, everyone wants that sale. Like you start yes. and you, you, you are like, well, I need to make the sales. You know, I put, I invested X amount of money. I put like my heart and soul for this. Mm. I need to make sales. Right. And so a lot of the times what I see is like, well, I can't, I don't have time to build an audience and, and put out all this content because contests cost money. Yes. I have to hire people. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take to develop an audience. It can be six months. I can't not go on. I cannot have sales. I have to have sales. I can't, you know, have no sales for six months. Uh, yeah. And so what ends up happening is like, people are like, no, 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 I'm just going to focus on sales. And how, do, like, how would you recommend just juggling that, you know? Cause I think that a lot of people just kind of panic, <sighs> you know, and they're yeah. like, when they launch. <laughs> and it's not just startups. Can I just say a great comfort to everyone out there uh, in podcast world listening that big brands the biggest brands have this same conflict right they're terrified of not making sales and it's fair enough you know because you're in business to make sales and frankly you should be marketing for your business you the point of being good at marketing is not so you can win awards the point of being good at marketing is so you can be good at business and frankly the discipline required to build an audience over time is challenging when you're starting out. I mean, I work with um, 
I have worked particularly in the last four years with some challenger brands and startup brands, uh, particularly sort of in the in the kind of you know software as a service space. And I mean, those guys don't need to sell as much, you know. Obviously, they're selling subscriptions, licenses, uh, and they're really really focused on sort of you know nurturing those leads. But what I would say to any startup owner, any kind of business owner that's sort of you know in that moment where they're thinking about well, I don't have time or effort or, or I can't risk, you know, just building an audience. I need to sell stuff. What I would say is that you can still do that. You can still sell your stuff, right? But make sure you're setting aside in selling your stuff, make sure that you're not, you know, um, neglecting the opportunity to build an audience. So for example, the winery, you know, sells their wine at the cellar door, but they also collect email addresses to maybe send people their invoice, for example. And at the same time, they say, hey, do you mind if we send you our monthly newsletter or whatever? And then they're beginning to build an audience that way. So they're not sacrificing the sale. And certainly, the best place for you to start building your audience is is with your customers because you can test content with them. You can test messages and stories and formats and different kinds of content types with your customers. So when someone buys something for you, from you, sorry, when someone buys something from you, you should be capturing their contact details so you can reach them again and they become part of your audience. So if you're worried about wasting time, money, effort, emotion, sleep uh, <laughs> on building an audience when you should be selling stuff, sell your stuff, but then make sure that as part of your mission immediately, that customer becomes part of your audience. Do not miss that opportunity because they are so excited about you at that moment when they've bought that swimwear or they've bought that bottle of wine, they're so excited about you that that is the best time to recruit them into your audience. Yeah. Like you said, it's that two-pronged approach, right? It's the performance and the brand building at the same time. There you go. Now, can can you, if you can, provide some examples of clients that you maybe have worked with when you implemented, we're going to go back to the content demand research to see how it works in real life? Yeah, I mean... um, you know, they're mostly big brands. Um, that's not to say that there aren't lessons or kind of transferable kind of insights for startups as well. Um, I would say in the insurance space, we work with, um, I'm going to say in New Zealand, we have uh, a couple of insurance brands that we work with there, large insurance brands. They're both under the same kind of, you know, the same company and there's a different insurance brands within that company. Um, and w- what we've done with those two brands is, is we have run the strategy kind of side by side to make sure that we differentiate the brands, which was one of the biggest kind of objectives at the start. And by really identifying the the unique demand for content for each of their audiences, even though those audiences and customers are actually, you know, quite similar. They look very similar. They have similar traits. They've kind of, you know, it's a fairly undifferentiated product in insurance. Um, mm-hmm. They um, have, we've been able to develop a content strategy and a program for them where um, their, their, their content is continuously kind of, I guess, referencing that demand that the audience and the customers have, uh, and that's unique. So we want to make sure to keep them apart. And I think that's a valuable lesson for anybody who maybe is, um, you know, might have two different products or services that they want to um, sell, you know, as part of their part of their business, part of their brand. Uh, and they want to make sure there's a differentiation between them. Content is a really good way to do that because you educate people through that content about why product X is different to product Y. Again, the winery is probably a really good example of that, right? There's red wines and white wines and rosé and there's Cab Merlot and Cab Sauvignon and, you know, there's all manner of different varietals. And so to kind of create that clarity in the audience's mind, uh, you can apply that content demand research principle to go, well, you know, how do I sort of, you know, respond to this demand for this particular product, one of them, and then how do I sort of twist that slightly uh, for a different product? And we've done that, um, I think, with some success in the last couple of years with these insurance brands in New Zealand. Uh, and then also another good example, I think, um, which is in kind of my heartland in tourism is Destination New South Wales, which is a um, a government tourism, it's a state tourism organization for New South Wales here in Australia. And um, we did a very kind of deep research piece there where we combined a lot of qualitative, uh, that's to say, you know, like anecdotal, non-kind of 
um, you know, non-spreadsheety graphic, you know, kind of data-driven, hardcore sort of, you know, um, Google Analytics type research with some of that more hardcore research. And we were able to develop a very clear uh, idea as people became more familiar with the state of New South Wales, with Sydney uh, and all the different regions, that they kind of moved along this journey and their needs, their demand actually changed. It evolved as they, as they became more familiar with the destination. And so we made sure that our research reflected that um, variety and breadth of needs across their kind of visitor journey, if you like. Uh, and that's, I think, an interesting lesson for startups and um, business owners who are just developing their brands to think about how your audience and your customers' needs for content and, frankly, any communication from your brand changes over time as they get to know you better. Because if you're still pumping out the same old content to that audience that you're pumping out to your kind of, you know, newbies, then uh, it's very possible you might alienate that more experienced, um, connected, informed, educated group. Uh, and so it's 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 valuable to think of your audience in that way as well, where there's a journey, uh, they become more knowledgeable, and how you can kind of serve them better as they move along that journey. So I think those are two kind of probably different examples, hopefully with a couple of you know useful lessons, I guess, for for startups. No, definitely. I think the the comment that you made that there's different audiences that are in different parts of your like your business's journey and how you create content and communicate with them is very different. I think that's a really great lesson for any business out there um, because the content that you might serve for someone who just found out about your business and someone who's been like a loyal follower um, and who's bought from you, you know, for years, I think the content and the messaging and, and the way that you speak to them would be very different. Yeah, um, it certainly, it certainly super, should be. Super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been amazing. And I think we're going to just end with one last question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so before we go, I, I think we've already talked about it, but let's do kind of like a resume. <laughs> Can you give us three tips for building a strategy around brand and content specifically aimed at small businesses and startups and maybe mm. end it off with the number one fatal mistake a, a startup <laughs> can make? in this whole process. <laughs> so we'll finish on a high. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Exactly. Um, okay. So, but that's good. I like to finish with a bit of drama. So that works for me. Um, look, I should preface this. Like I said, I, although I do a lot of work with big brands, I have spent a fair amount of time, particularly in the last kind of three, three and a half years working with challenger brands and startups. Um, so, so I, I guess um, I would sort of, you know, contextualize that advice as kind of a blend, I guess, from that experience, the best of mm -hmm. both worlds. Um, the first tip I would say is uh, always audience first and brand second. So, so first, understand what kind of content or areas of interest your audience wants uh, or needs in their life as is relevant to your brand and then build your brand around that rather than the other way around. Because I think the stitching example you gave Yvonne is really interesting. You know, that could be a differentiator for a swimwear brand, even though you might not have been thinking, you know, your passion might be for a particular kind of swimwear, but Hey, the stitching question is something that comes up a lot. I can build a brand and identity partially around that. It stands in much better stead to stand out uh, to your audience and to your customers, uh, because you're you're pushing their buttons, their specific buttons, rather than saying, "Hey, this is my swimwear. Do you like it?" Oh, I, I didn't I didn't think about the stitching. Sorry, you know, it's kind of a bit of an afterthought. Yeah. So I would say, audience first, brand second is my kind of first tip. My second tip is um is is an extension of that is don't confuse your product or service with a brand. And this is not unique to content. There's a great quote from David Ogilvy, who is the, you know, uh, one of the founders of advertising, I guess, from uh, way back. He said that uh, within every brand is a product, but not every product is a brand. And this is really critical for a startup to understand because they often launch their, their product as the brand and, and they, and you know, <laughs> Maybe I'll come back to this in the fatal mistake, but that can often have really dire consequences because if your brand is is that is that product, if your whole brand is that product or service, and it tanks or it's rubbish or you know for some reason you didn't quite get it right, then you're done. 
you're, you're finished, right? And so it's really important to not confuse your product or service with a brand. You, you need to wrap that brand around the product and the service, whether that's your own personal brand, whether it's something to do with the company culture or whatever it is, it must be more than and bigger than the product or service. Okay. And then um, I think maybe, I don't know, controversially or not, um, I don't know, but I, I would suggest uh, don't make long-term plans. Oh, I think, I think I think good marketers, <laughs> I think good marketers adopt bad habits sometimes because they stick to plans over the medium or, or the long term even that may or may not remain relevant. And I think that marketers and certainly marketing skewed business owners pass those lessons onto new business owners and to startups. And they're like, hey, you've got to have a 12-month plan or a 36-month plan or whatever. But the easiest way to avoid this kind of bad habit forming is to simply not make those long-term plans, right? Yes, you want to have an overall vision or kind of a blueprint for where you want your brand to go. That's very important. But don't build a marketing calendar, I would say, at least for the first two years of your, your business. You know, keep your overall vision and blueprint, you know, very much front and center, but don't commit yourself to activities um, that you don't know are A, going to be relevant for your audience, going to be relevant for your business stage, and B, may not actually be realistic if uh, aspects of your business change. Keep the vision and the blueprint front and center, but don't you know make a noose for yourself um, by making long-term kind of calendars and plans like that, I would say. So, yeah, those are my three tips and the fatal mistake the fatal mistake. i i think that that <laughs> fatal mistake comes from my second tip right okay. do not confuse your product or service with your brand yeah. because yeah. that is like putting everything on black and you know the the bloody wheel spins and it all lands on red and well thank you very much i'm you know going back to my <laughs> going back home with my tail between my legs if your product or service is your brand um which many start and you see you know all these really shitty ads on instagram for you know, some kind of bizarre little kind of, you know, invention that pe people have clearly, you know, created as part of their startup. And that is their entire brand. There is nothing else about their, their brand which is visible to the world. And I, I think that's very risky. I think that's potentially a very fatal mistake. And I've worked with two startups in particular where we had to deliberately create a brand around a product or service because um, even though a product or service was, was, very, was very good, um, there was an enormous risk that, um, you know, that might be misinterpreted or, or misunderstood um, by the wrong audience. And perhaps even more importantly, um, the brand actually allows you to charge a premium for something because if it's just a product or service, it's very transactional. Uh, and the brand is what allows you to kind of add that extra layer and sheen. And, you know, who knows, maybe make an extra 20%. So I would suggest that, that is the fatal mistake to confuse a product or service with a brand when it's not necessarily the case. I think that's a really great point. And I think it's a great thing to end on. A lot of food for thought for our listeners here. Um, I wanted to say thank you so much. I enjoy this conversation so much. I feel like thank there's... You a lot of really great tips and information. And if anyone out there, anyone listening wants to uh, see more from you, read more from you, get in contact with you, where can they find you? They can uh, look me up on Twitter. I love, I'm one of the uh, Twitter originals and I am a big fan <laughs> of Twitter. My, my username on Twitter is HackJack and there's a very long story behind that. It's the end of the podcast, so I can't tell it. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or they can send me an email. Certainly I'm happy to receive an email. It's my first name. Uh, Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S at storiation.com uh, and um, and I'd, I'd love to chat to anyone who wants to chat about all these nerdy things. Perfect. Thank you so much again. And, Thank you. Uh, I had a great time. time. I had a great chat. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Branding Lab podcast with your host, Yvonne Ivanescu. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, or leave us a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you next time.